Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Do nothing from rivalry. Count others more significant than yourselves. Look to the interests of others. They're really pretty simple commands to say, right? And yet, how... What's, what, in what stark contrast do they stand to our normal uh, operating procedure as human beings? St. Paul is well aware that each of us humans, we exist in the universe with a me at the center, right? It's just a basic fact of life. We draw all of our maps and all of our scales of what is important with I standing in the very middle. You know, it's curious to me that in our culture we've even taken this sort of basic fact of humanity and kind of made it a virtue uh, as I think popularized in the maxim look out for number one um, does anyone know who coined that phrase it was a, a man named Arnold Rothstein as best as the, uh, the internet could, uh, could tell me who incidentally was a mafia kingpin and a racketeer so isn't that curious that one of the secular creeds of our culture came from uh, like an arch criminal? What does that say both about the creed and our culture? And even if we don't personally ever say that phrase, and I hope you don't, <laughs> uh, it's self-evidence though that it is r- sort of getting at something that's true about our human nature. We are inherently selfish. We are instinctively looking out for number one. We do not naturally become unselfish. To become unselfish, as these commands uh, are, are directed towards, we, we actually need to undergo a radical transformation. It's, it's really, it's a total reorientation, right? It's sort of like, it's analogous to when, you know, that great shift in science uh, from when Copernicus came around, where in one moment we were, there was this thought that the Earth was the center of the cosmos, and this huge shift, polar shift to, oh no, 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 the sun is the center of our solar system. Right? This kind of big upheaval. That's something what this command is asking us to do. With, with man, by nature, this would be impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And actually, this is what has already begun to be effected in us as believing Christians. When we received the Holy Spirit, we now have God, to use Paul's language, God working within us, which is an extraordinary claim. We have God working within us to uproot ourselves from this sort of inherent egotism uh, and to transform us. Paul says in this passage we heard well read from Philippians, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. Do you see how the sort of odd juxtaposition, usually you would not command someone to have what is already theirs, But that is what Paul is saying. Have what is yours. God has given you this. You have the mind of Christ planted within you by the Holy Spirit. Lay a hold of it. Invite it to the table in your thinking and in your decision making. Paul would kind of summarize that principle at the end of this passage. I think it's one of my favorite verses in scripture. Work out what God has worked in. Work out what God has worked in is working in. 
often this process is called sanctification, right? One of the church words. Um, it's this collaborative process through which we seek God's transformation of our inner man. Now, the word transformation is used a lot in Scripture, right? Famously, Romans 12, be transformed uh, by the renewing of your minds. Transformation implies transformation into something, right? Like if you took a blob of clay, you can't just transform it into nothing. There's a, there is a final form which transformation uh, is guided towards. And so if we ask the question, well, well what is that final form? Um, Paul sketches it out for us in this passage in Philippians. Um, I... Feel free to flip open your bulletins, because I'm going to be referencing a lot of verses in Philippians uh, this morning. He gives us the shape of the mind of Christ, the form that we are to emulate in what's one of the most famous passages in Paul's letters. It's called the Christ Hymn, verses two through five, uh, sorry, starting verses 5 through 8 in uh, Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind, this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Hearing that passage, do you see sort of the, the trajectory of it, the, the logic, kind of the flow that Paul is uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit is painting about what Jesus did? That here he is, here is the Son of God, the, the second person of the all-powerful, infinite trinity of any being most worthy of sort of receiving accolade and honor, who doesn't snatch at those things, but actually humbles himself in obedience, becomes incarnate, which means he becomes mortal, which means he's going to be killed, and not just any death, but like the worst death you could have in the first century, death on a cross. Right? Do, you see, do you see that trajectory kind of running through these verses, this downward slope of continued humility and obedience? Is that plain? Do you see it in the passage? Okay, great. God went to the depths of the underworld out of love and obedience to the Father and out of his love, believe it or not, for us, particularly us, and this sort of is the, gets to the very heart, right, of the wild Christian claim that God has come down to us sort of rendering moot all these futile attempts of humanity to try and claw our way up to God. And it's this sort of downward trajectory, this sort of going lower, going deeper into humility that we have to understand in order to understand what Paul is saying in Philippians chapter 2. Not only so we would offer the right praise to God, recognizing this extraordinary thing he has done, the fruits of which we still live with, right? That's what brings us the forgiveness of our sins. But also because Paul is sort of painting this picture of what Jesus has done to underwrite his command to us, which is actually God's command to us, speaking through St. Paul, of do nothing out of rivalry, consider others more than yourselves. That's why he would charge us these sort of um, huge commands, because this is what the Son of God has done. And this is what the mind of the Son of God, which he's given to us, uh, the, what God wants to see fulfilled in our lives in imitation of our Savior as well. We're to look to the interests of others because God looked to the interests of others. right? Us. God looked to our interests. 
Um, it's something which I, my mind never ceases to kind of chew on and be like, whoa, God is humble. God is humble. And if it's true about God, it kind of brings the arguments that you, Paul might encounter to an end, right? Like if, if God is this way and he made us, how could we do otherwise? If he would humble himself, how could we not be humble in the face of that reality? So what would otherwise be humanly impossible, God has made possible, not only by example, but by giving us his Holy Spirit to do these things. So it is possible, God's equipped us to obey it, that we should in humility count others more significant than ourselves. So in sum, as Christians, we actually categorically need to not look out for number one. That's not all, uh, actually to put it even in a better way, uh, we are to look out for number one. We're, it's just we're not number one, right? Other people are number one. There's this great um, evangelistic movement. Some of you may have encountered it. Um, it's called I Am Second. And they had these great interviews with sort of famous Christians uh, about their testimony. And it's being, God's using it as a tool uh, to bring a lot of people to a knowledge of himself. And I just love that phrase. It's such a great sort of thing you can just put in your brain and kind of log forever. I am second. Other people first. I am second. Let, if there's nothing else you take away from the sermon, um, to kind of place that among the core maxims and uh, you know, mantras or whatever it is of your life, uh, I, I am second. As Paul says, others are, are more important than ourselves. The, um, I, I get into some technical Greek thing here, but I changed my mind. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> um, yeah. I want to um, take this command that the scripture gives of being humble and just, just bring it under roost in three particular areas of our life, just to kind of put some flesh on what do these abstract concepts look like. Um, I think one area where we do well uh, to bring this command for humility home uh, is in our conversations. In our conversations, we need to count others more significant than ourselves. So what I mean is, um, often when we move beyond like greetings and the weather and we're talking with other people about things which are our thoughts or ideas or values, or um, we often, I think, sort of oblige the other person to air theirs, but we know kind of we operate deep down like, well, but, but my own the things I'm going to say are, are much more important in this conversation. And I, I actually, I can't even get very far into this point without... Um, being forced really to confess to you that um, this is something I really struggle with in the present, um, as some of you have experienced in your relationship with me. Um, that, you know, there are some things where I preach on where, uh, in God's mercy, I, I've not struggled with it, but it's there in, the, in God's word, I bring it forward. Um, there's other things where it's something I've had a long struggle with, and God in his mercy has given me some insights and some tools that I can share with you. Kind of, and I'm speaking you know, something about more in the past. This is something kind of live in the present. There are a handful of you who I've had to apologize for, for, for speaking with an air of superiority sometimes in conversation about you know, ideas and things. And I really am sorry for that. Um, because God's only lately been sort of shining light on this thing in my life. There may be some of you who I've offended with sort of superior airs, and I don't even know it. Um, in which case, I, I invite you to have one of those godly conflict conversations we've talked about a few weeks ago, to come and say, yeah, man, you really are sort of struggling with this. I, I need your help, actually, to kind of really see the depths of this in my own life. So I speak about this not because this is something I've mastered, 
but because my charge here right, is to hold up the word of God. And in this case, this is something where I'm actively struggling and trying to figure out, God, how do I speak things which I know are true, but, but not with, but with humility, in, in thinking of others as more significant than myself. Um, wonderfully, the standard God calls us to is not the standard of just whatever priest you have or any human standard. It's his own standard. ought to be held up at all times. So if we take the word of God seriously, all of us, and whether we're talking about politics or religion or experiences or whatever, we, we, do, we should take the views of the other person in our conversation more significant than our own, as more significant than our own. It's sort of along the lines of that great prayer of St. Francis, attributed to St. Francis, you know, that it's uh, better, more, that God would allow us, and of course I'm blanking on what that is, but it's the, something along the lines of that we would... Uh, be more eager to hear some, what someone else has to say than kind of put our own words on the table. That's a good butchering of, of that prayer. It's a much more beautiful prayer than that. We'll pray it next Sunday at the blessing of the animals. I think, you know, something I run into a lot of times is I, I get into an argument and I think I'm like defending the truth. And maybe that's somewhere in the mixture of my intent, like that's a good motive in the mixture of a, with bad things. But actually... Um, I think it's just an overestimation of my own thoughts masquerading as this sort of like, oh no, what I care about is the truth here. But really, I just want my opinion to get aired. So I'm working towards humility in this area. I encourage you to, to strive for the same in your conversations, to remember that I'm second. Um, so that's sort of one area. I think this hum- you know, command to humility, can we do well to practice. Um, the second I want to offer you is, is in our homes. Uh, in our domestic lives. Uh, now, most of you, I know this is, means most concretely your spouse. Uh, some of you might mean roommates. In our homes, let each of you look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. And as, when I sort of examine even you know, my own domestic life, how many things do I do just because that's what I wanted to do, rather than sort of making my schedule and my list of priorities off of what Others, namely, it's chiefly, you know, your spouse wants you to do. I'm really convinced that, you know, I think for a long time growing up, I thought all the sort of commands of Christianity and the Christian life, you know, all these things about loving your neighbor and all this stuff, that you've got to go, like, find a neighbor somewhere over there and show them the love of Christ <laughs> and kind of neglecting the fact that there's a neighbor in my house, <laughs> my closest neighbor, uh, my wife. When I, before I was married, my parents and my siblings, you know, like that, those are your nearest neighbors. And the commands which God gives us are to be exercised, I think, first and foremost in our homes. I think this work of working out our salvation, um, we have to think of our homes as sort of the primary incubator for that. And it should bleed out into ministry in the world, but it should be out of the home, not instead of in the home. I really think we need to practice humility in our homes. Um, one thing well, I would just commend as a sort of thought experiment right now is what's the thing you hate to do the most in the week and you know surely there's some practical reasons you could give why you don't like it but at the end of the day it's just not what you want to do if it was up to your druthers you wouldn't do it um, that is a the great arena to begin with decentering the self putting yourself second and saying nope I would much rather do this but I will do this because I'm second uh, as a way of practicing this humility in our homes so, humility in our conversations, humility in our homes. Um, the last arena, I think, which I want to put forward, I mean, this should be applied in every arena, but the, the last one I want to specify this morning 
where I think this command should we really need to practice it um, is in politics. Uh, <laughs> I sort of just said the P word in church. Um, <laughs> as I was writing the sermon, I almost heard uh, those hyenas in Lion King saying, say it again, say it again, politics. Um, now, I know that some of you have had the regrettable experience of um, being told from the pulpit which party to vote for. That's regrettable. And depending on sort of which churches you've been a part of in the past, it may have been, you know, you might have been told to vote Democrat or vote Republican. Um, that's not what I'm going to do this morning. Don't worry. So rest easy. <sighs> part, actually, you know, it's part of the practice of trying to speak humbly is why I'm committed to never using the pulpit as a thing to grandstand my own political opinions. I have some political opinions, but I, with God's help, you don't ever have to fear that I'm going to use this to sort of be the means of, of sharing those. You actually have to really dig to get them out of me, I hope. <laughs> well, that was what I hope, at least. Um, so I think, you know, we are actually, it's, a, it's the right Christian instinct to reject the bad way of preaching about politics. But I think, you know, of course, with everything, in rejecting something, we can make the opposite error um, of thinking that Christ's commands in the Bible have no bearing on our political lives, right? That's the, that would be the opposite error into which we can swing. That we have our, our Christian life here, but over here, then, I, here's where I have my political views and opinions. And I, that sort of segmented thinking runs totally counter to Christian discipleship. The Lord Jesus is the Lord of the whole cosmos, and he invites us to follow him with all of our lives, including uh, our domestic lives and our conversations, and our political convictions and lives. How we vote, how we talk about issues, uh, which candidates we like, our officials, and how we, talk, how we speak about them. The whole thing, everything to do with politics... God is commanding us to carry out that life with the same principles he commands us to carry out all of our life. Including looking to the interests of others. And so here's what I mean by that. I think, you know, so much of what gets thrown about politically, whether it's something we see on TV or, you know, around the proverbial water cooler or just in conversations with each other, so much of how we talk about politics, even as Christians, is based singularly on looking out for our own interests, right? Uh, how, how much taxes is that going to take from me? Or what group am I a part of that that's going to come against, right? There's this, in fact, it's almost built into the very DNA of our uh, democratic republic to sort of fight for your own interests. And at some level, there's, that kind of works in a political way, but it needs to at least be flavored with, spiced with, um, Christian humility that looks out for others and not just the interests of my own personal well-being or whatever group I belong to. Um, and this applies to everybody, right? Like if you, you, I'm looking out, I see a bunch of white faces. This would be true if I was speaking to a Hispanic congregation or a black congregation. Everyone, we need to move beyond just thinking about our own interests and also looking out for the interests of others. I think um, Jesus wouldn't talk that way politically. He wouldn't be just looking to like hedge out exactly what is his own interest. And so much, I think, you know, we trick ourselves, like with conversation where I've caught myself thinking I'm defending some objective truth, but really I'm just wanting my own opinion to get out there. I think so much of our political conversation, we're talking about, oh yeah, what this group needs, but really it's just saying what I want to see happen. So let me, I'm going to ruffle one feather, just one, just one feather. 
Um, take, for instance, this big issue of illegal immigration. It's in the news all the time, right? Whatever your thoughts are on the various issues sort of within the topic category of illegal immigration, and Christians can be on both sides of like particular thinking. Like you may have, in this room, there are some convictions on one side, some on another, on all varieties of executive actions or legislations. I just ask yourself to inquire, are your views founded on also looking to the interests of others? I think... I'm really actually not trying to sort of passively dictate which way to answer this question. I just know that the tone of how so much political dialogue that I hear on TV, the radio, and even in conversation is this sort of like fighting, like, no, 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 I need my things. And there's not this sort of, well, what are, this, what are, the, what are the people I oppose? What do they need? What are they looking for? What are their interests? You may still end up having the same uh, political conviction as you have right now on this and any issue after this reflection. Fine. But we should at least, right, open the box and sort of look like, am I, do I hold this political conviction while taking into view the fact that God has commanded me to be humble, to not do anything out of rivalry, both individual or corporate, or, or conceit, or, or, and to be looking to the interests of others. So, so when it comes to, say, um, illegal immigration, um, there are a number of reasons why you might have a view for really tight borders or really loose borders, Maybe you're really invested in, in one of the issues. Perhaps, um, perhaps illegal workers are keeping wages low in your sector. Maybe that's a thing. Christians, again, can have disagreements on that. But what I want to say is, even if the worst-case scenario is true, let's say you are getting lower wages, hypothetically, on this issue. Um, are you, in your opinion about it, are you looking out just for your own wages, just for your own interests, or also for the interests of others? And I think, you know, in particular, you know, the, the question of immigration above other political issues, you know, it touches on a number of Christian themes, right? Like the uh, immigrants I mentioned a lot in the Bible. I encourage you to do a, a word study on it. Um, but to think about sort of your own political opinions and to really conjure in your mind, like the actual, you know, Mexican or Guatemalan family that's going to be affected by your conviction. And maybe when you'll still have that conviction, whatever you hold, but to really think, what are their actual needs? And am I just running completely roughshod over them based on what I feel like I need for the state and the nation that I live in? So that's all I'm asking. I'm, I'm not telling you what to vote. I'm not telling you even what opinion to have. Or, or I, don't even, I don't know enough about economics to know exactly how the answers do fall to some of these uh, very tricky questions. Um, but I do know that as Christians, we should even embracing sort of our worst-case fear... Um, to say, yeah, that could, that could be so, that it, this could actually hurt me, but out of a deference to others, that's my political opinion. I think actually, um, you know, there's a lot of issues which would do well to kind of apply this. I've just offered one. Um, but I encourage you for all the kind of issues that are just floating forever through the news cycle to think this way. And I really think that it would be a really powerful witness to the world. I think there's this sort of... Um, I've got to be really careful how I say this. <laughs> Those who are theologically liberal, who've abandoned the Christian gospel, and yet keep the name of Christian, sort of are outspoken in claiming to have cornered the market on compassionate politics. And I think that claim is flawed, even in itself, right? To equate sort of one political view with compassion. But I, 
I think it would be a really powerful witness to the world if theologically conservative Christians like us would be the most unselfish and deferent in how we talk about politics, both with who we're talking about, the conversation piece, right, and in the issue itself, that we're really thinking about what are the needs of others? And, and, and all, of all the others, I mean, really trying to take in the big picture, but what are the actual needs? And that's above and beyond what I value and think is important on this topic. So there it is. Okay. <laughs> wasn't so bad, huh? Oh, I hope not. You'll tell me later. <laughs> Do nothing. Let me, let me read to you again, having settled that about politics. Let me just read to you the words of God. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Amen.